services on November 15, 2016 in Durban, South Africa. So we were going to talk today about, well, I, don't, I don't think I need to sit that far away from everybody. Um, we're going to talk today about watering the root, or really getting to what is the, the root situation. And there's a, there's a nice story that I like to tell. Uh, a company that had purchased a new boiler. And unfortunately, even though it was new, it kept breaking. So they had a number of different repair people come in and try to fix it. And they would fix it and it would break again. They fix it and it would break again. They fix it and it break again. And finally, one of the employees said, hey, I'm a really good guy. So they called him. And he came in, he had a little hammer, and he went around the boiler and he was like tapping it. Spends a while just tapping it. Finally, he finds a place and he goes, wham! And then he says, all right, turn it back on. And if it's still working in two weeks, you can send me a bill. You can send me, I'll send you a bill. So in two weeks, they call him, and they say it's still working. So he sends an invoice, and it's an invoice for $5,000. So president of the company calls the repairman and says, can you send me an itemized invoice? So then he sends him back. For fixing the boiler, for hitting the boiler, five dollars. For knowing where to hit the boiler, four thousand nine hundred ninety-five. <laughs> so the question is: Is there one place we can go? We call this, and I can type this water in the root. If you want to plant to be healthy, you deal primarily with the root. I mean, you may also spray the leaves for bugs and diseases and things like that. But primarily, you're giving nourishment, giving water, water and minerals to the root, and then that nourishes the whole thing. It's just the one place. You don't give nourishment to each place separately. Or in our body, we put nourishment in our mouth or our stomach. If you want to have healthy fingernails and healthy hair, healthy feet, <laughs> then a lot of it. It's not obviously entirely what we eat, but a lot of it is what we eat. So this is the question: If we're looking for a system of attaining enlightenment, a system for attaining peace, a system for attaining spiritual realization. Is there one thing we can do? What is the one thing we can do that is likely to achieve all that? And that is bhakti yoga. I'm in the process of a, a long-term discussion with a teacher of Buddhist meditation. And he's talking to me about the three aspects of Buddhist meditation. One is when you meditate on an object, not because the object just has any intrinsic value, but just as a way of calming the mind. And another is where you do a meditation where you're constantly scanning the body so that you get a consciousness of being the observer of the body out of the body. And the other is where you do a meditation on compassion and forgiveness and the various things that we think about as, as values of the character. And in discussing with him, I can understand, wow, what I'm doing in Bhakti Yoga has accomplished all of that without having to do it as a separate discipline. And, and I must say, it intrigued me that without even knowing about these things as a separate discipline in Buddhism, that I and other people in the practice of Bhakti Yoga were automatically achieving this. And 
my spiritual master, my guru, uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, that's a long name, so we'll just call him Prabhupada. He would often say that. He would often say that if you practice bhakti, you will accomplish everything in all the other systems of yoga and all the other systems of spirituality. And indeed, it says that in the Bhagavad Gita, that if you're actually a yogi, then you will achieve everything that people can achieve by working hard in the world or by culture and philosophy or by meditation, whatever anybody's doing. That doesn't mean necessarily that you'll get exactly the external result. So if somebody works hard to make a lot of money and get a big house and a flat screen TV and a big room, it doesn't necessarily mean that if you practice bhakti yoga, you'll wake up one day and you'll have a, a mansion with a flat screen TV and it. it doesn't exactly mean like that. But it means the purpose for which a person is getting those things, the purpose for which a person is working hard for their mansion, that you will achieve. Is it possible to water that you will get the satisfaction that a person is seeking in that kind of activity. That you'll feel, oh, I'm, I'm fulfilled you know, whether I get those things on the external platform or not. So what is this one thing that bhakti yoga is, is about? And it's really such a simple thing. It's to always remember Krishna. And that's all. Of course, in bhakti yoga we have a whole complex philosophy of life. We have a process of what you do in bhakti, which can be done on a very simple level, just to chant Hare Krishna, and it can be done on a very complex level with all different kinds of rules for worship and so forth. But the essence of bhakti is to always remember Krishna. And the, the purpose of everything that we do in bhakti is to always remember Krishna and never forget him. And if by doing everything in bhakti, we don't always remember Krishna, then we're not really doing bhakti. Then bhakti has become for those people some sort of religious practice. So why is remembering Krishna? Why is it that if we just remember Krishna, we conquer everything else? Krishna means the all-attractive. the source of all wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation, who is both personal and impersonal, who is the, the source and the enjoyer and the sharer of all infinite varieties of pleasure and infinite varieties of loving relationships. And is the, Krishna is also the self of the self, each of us is our own individual self. We are also part of a greater self. I mean, materially we can think of this, we're each citizens, but we're part of a country. You know, we're each persons, but we're part of a family. You can talk of a family as a unit. You can talk of a country as a unit, or a school, or a place of work. So in all of reality, Krishna is the sum total. He is the, the essence of the essence. And yet we are all also individuals. So we're part of him, but we're not thinking. We're not part of him in the sense that we don't exist also as individuals. And Krishna being both impersonal and personal, he has a, a form. And of course I find it 
uh, very interesting that in our scriptural descriptions of the form of the Lord, he is described as being black and beautiful. You know, when I was growing up in America, the African Americans uh, had this propaganda, black is beautiful. Probably you're all way too young to but Krishna is black and beautiful. It's called Shaina Sundar. Shaina means black. Sundara means very beautiful. He's compared to the color of a very dark rain cloud. A storm cloud. Before it's winter. But yet he's a fault And he has all variety of activities which are mirrored here. Something like if you've ever studied the that Plato talked about how there was a reality that was just shadow in the cave. So all of our activities here are, are shadows or reflections of the activities of which we are meant to participate in. And whatever we do in Bhakti, whether it's chanting Hare Krishna, whether it's cooking vegetarian food and offering it to Krishna, uh, whether it's studying sacred writings, is all meant to absorb our consciousness. So how is it that absorbing our consciousness in Krishna solves all of these problems? Because he is the beginning and the middle and the end of everything. People refer to him in various religions as God, but to say that Krishna is God is really... Most people's concepts of God are so limited and so distorted that it's almost... You know, it's, it's almost insulting to say that Krishna is God with the way that people think about God. People think about God as uh, a jealous, angry, boring, old, ultra-conservative person, a faceless person who is about rewarding anyone who believes in him and punishing anyone who doesn't believe and, and that that concept is so far from, from what Krishna is. That although Krishna is God in the sense of being the origin, the creator, the source, and the friend, he's not God like that. Okay? He's very young. Okay? He's always a teenager. So just imagine our Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy says that God is a black teenage male. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Isn't it? Of course, he's not a human being, like a spirit. But he's very young and he's, he's very playful and spontaneous, unpredictable. And he's always dancing, he's always he's a musician. His reality is full of song and dance and celebration. That's that's fine. A youthful, loving, eternally adolescent, full of song and dance and celebration. I don't think that has much to do with the concept most religions have of God. He's, he loves and he is loved. He is himself. Only he punishes us only, only in the sense 
that if we act out of harmony with reality, we suffer. But that's not exactly what he's punishing us, although it could be explained like that. You know, you, you could say that if you try, you know, like, like you see, uh, sometimes there's clear glass plates where they put a, a silhouette of a bird on it. You see that? That's because if you don't do that, the birds will think there's nothing there and they'll fly into it and they'll get hurt. So, if we do things out of harmony with reality, if we try to walk the glass doors instead of opening them, uh, then we suffer pain. But that doesn't mean that the person who designed the glass door designed it as a torture device. Or it doesn't mean people, you know, the architect of the house didn't think, let me put a glass door here so people will try to walk through it. So if we act out of harmony with reality, we do suffer. And all of our suffering, all of our body suffering, mental suffering, social suffering, is due to acting out of harmony with reality. But that's not because God is there to say, okay, you're not doing what I say. Suffer. It's that concept of, of God is, is actually quite childish. It's a very, it's a very undeveloped concept. So Krishna is not like he's he's also very present. He's, he's everywhere, and he's everywhere in a very personal way as well as very personal. And thinking about him is really the most natural thing that we could do. We, we generally want to think about people and events that are exciting, that are pleasurable, that are serious, that are caring. And so thinking about Krishna is really natural. And the process and the activities that we do are simply meant for that purpose. The most essential thing that we do is simply to meditate on the name of Krishna. And perhaps that seems like a little, a little bit of an odd practice. But Krishna is found in that sound of his name. As side benefits, one will get the benefit that one will get from doing any kind of contemplative or meditative practice where the mind becomes very peaceful. Where one will come to see things as they are, be able to make good decisions, and not be influenced by one will not be a slave anymore to the body. One will not be a slave anymore to the mind. One will be a master of the body of the mind, and the body of the mind. So those are side benefits. But the main benefit is that we again connect with our source and with our essence. And when we do that, we, we live in harmony with truth, which eliminates our problems. And we see things in the proper perspective. We can make good decisions. We can be the kind of people that we want to be. We can be the people that that live up to our own ideas. Those are all side benefits. The main benefit is that we get to be in contact with the most fun and dynamic and, and loving essence of the other.
So I'd like to open it up to any discussion. There's still, we're going to, not everybody's going to be have exactly the same material situation. But spiritually, we're all equal. Who we actually are, our real identity. We're all equal in power, we're all equal in beauty. Not that we all look the same, but we're all, we're all equal in knowledge. Because we're part of Krishna. We're all different. We're all eternally individuals, but no one is better than anyone else. Different. Materially, you could say. Somebody who has two legs can run better than somebody who has one leg. 
somebody who's tall is better at reaching something that's high. We can talk about better. But spiritually, can't talk about that. It doesn't. It's a nonsensical proposition. Yes? Uh, I just wanted to know. So, like, the spiritual reality seems more ideal, yet we still face with this reality that's not so ideal. Now, why does it seem that even people who are aware of this more ideal or a far better reality, which is our real reality, that still choose to deal with this temporary, illusory reality and also try to, to try to become the best within it, even though understanding that it's still there. So people who are aware of the spirituality depends on, on what level they're aware. If they're aware primarily theoretically with very limited experience, then their consciousness is still mostly with the illusory, inferior reality. And so they're dealing with it because that's still where their awareness is. They're, they're still mostly asleep. So if they're just very partially awake, they have to deal with the area in which they have an awareness of. Uh, those who are very much awake to who we really are, uh, those who look at others and, and see the outward body and the outward circumstance only incidentally, but don't actually see that. Uh, they work in the world out of compassion. changing we already are. That's actually what we already are. It's not a question of becoming that. It's who we are. We are we are spirits. But spirit doesn't just mean it's not just some vague thing. As a spirit, we are youthful, dynamic, playful, musical entities. That's who we are at our core. Just like Krishna, we are part of Krishna. We are singers and dancers and musicians and full of a festival. That's who we are and playful. So what exactly is your question? How do we realize that? I would like to see that because I can't be Because my perception still feels undynamic and not mm. What happens when you see the sun, you also see yourself. When we start realizing Krishna, we also realize something of ourselves. It's simultaneous. And then you'll start experiencing. I mean, my, my body's getting old and I have limitations because my body's getting old in terms of how I can act in the world. Externally. I can't force my body to act the way it acted when it was 15. I can try, but it doesn't work. But my sense of self is quite different.
So on the external level to others, they will see somebody as, oh, well, they're working in the world and they have limitations by their external body and their external situation. But as you get to know Krishna, you get to know, wait a minute, you start to experience it. it it's, not, it's not an idea or a philosophy anymore, but it starts to be one's lived reality. I mean, we saw that with my spiritual teacher, Srinivasa. When he came out of India, he came first to America, and he was 70 years old. And he had the typical situations of an older body. But his mood was very childlike and very playful. Always. It was always like that. Even though he sometimes had to deal with serious things. Sometimes you would have to deal with very serious things. Hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> How do you realize that? That is our process of bhakti yoga. That as we meditate, especially meditating on Krishna's names, then we'll start to experience ourselves. Stereotypically, that Krishna would be like teenage male who dances and sings. Because that's, well, in my reality, that's what I see most of black teenage males do. Um, but also, you, you, you said that we are eternally youthful, eternally musical. Yes. And if Krishna is the essence, yes. and our true self is also comes from that essence, yes. so is our eternal self then black? Oh, there's many colors. And colors we don't see in this world. Many colors. And my other question was... Um, Krishna also has forms with other colors. Oh, okay. So he doesn't only have a blackish form. But his, the form in which he experiences all possible pleasures simultaneously is that form. And he has other forms. But the, in our in our original form, there, there's countless varieties of color and, and shape. Much, much more than what we see here. Not even, you know. Here we just basically have spectrums of brown. You know, it's basically brown. And it's just degrees of brown, right? You know, when people say I'm white, I'm, I'm not white, I'm kind of light orange. Like, <laughs> sort of like a light pinkish orange, you know, I'm not really white. I mean, that would be white. <laughs> so it, but it's just a lesser brown, you understand? Yeah. So we really only have one color, we just have shades. Is it? Mm-hmm. We just, we just, it's one color and it's just shades of it. But in our, in, even on the higher planets, they have more colors, actual colors. And I don't know this by heart. I, I, I wish I did. I should, but I don't. On the, on the spiritual level, 
different colors correspond to different moods and different particular flavors of, of enjoyment and relationship with Krishna. And so depending on your particular flavor, how you want to express love, so your form has that color, you can also change it. It can also be dynamic, it can appear. I mean, even, even we learn on the higher planets of this universe, there are beings who can shape-shift so certainly in the spiritual world, that's the ultimate spiritual reality that's there. But the ultimate form of Krishna is a black teenage woman who basically just sings and dances and parties all day. <laughs> uh, and my other question was um, with regards to, uh, you said that we need better political solutions. Um, I don't know if it's, it's going to make sense, um, but okay, understanding that you were born into different bodies, maybe yes. maybe born into a, a, a into a different gender or a different yes. race, yes. but understanding intersectionality, that regardless of um, the fact that we are not this, yes. but with, um, there's still conditions that you yes. experience because of your skin. Correct. So is it then necessary to strive towards better? political uh, solutions, even though this is not who we are and this is not actually yes. reality. Yes and no. For an individual, it is possible to attain spiritual perfection even if the world is a mess. You know, even if you're in a, you know, North Korean prison. You know what I'm saying? Enlightenment and connection with Krishna is not dependent on your material situation at all. Not in any way, shape, or form. But Krishna himself would like that on this earth planet that there was a political and social situation that was fair and just and compassionate. That's what he would prefer. Because that can force things. That's what you would prefer. And so it's, it's interesting that the same scriptures that describe Krishna also describe what would be an ideal social and political situation. Because for most people, it's hard to even think about enlightenment if you're hungry. I mean, it's possible. If you, are you familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. So, you know, his contention was if your lower level needs are not met, it's very hard to go for your higher level needs. It's possible. Otherwise, there wouldn't be starving artists. You know, it's possible that if you can have not even your basic necessities of life and you can be doing great things and realize yourself, it's not impossible, but it's difficult. If people don't have clean water and they don't have food and they don't have those, you know, a satisfying way of working in the world. It's very hard to talk about enlightenment. They, they won't hear you. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. It, it's just like that room downstairs. There was no ventilation. It was all full of mold. As soon as I went in, it was like, whoa. And you could smell the mold. So I don't, I don't want to have a meeting in the room where people are going to be getting headache and dizzy and 
and from the fungus molds and Is it possible? Yes, but it's not fabulous. Should we also work for social justice? Yes, we should. Should we become absorbed in working for social justice to the point that thinking doing that in and of itself is going to make people happy and satisfied? No. This room is not going to make you happy and satisfied, but it provides a platform where we can discuss something that will make you happy and satisfied. If we get absorbed simply in, in having social justice, we're going to miss the whole point. But should we work for it? Definitely. Should that be part of what we do in the world? For sure. Now, how each of us will do that will vary, depending on our particular nature and our particular talents. It's not that all of us should run for political office, for example. Some of us would be suitable for that, and some of us wouldn't. It's not that, you know, that all of us should write articles on these things. Some people are suited for that and some people are not. But yes, we should work for it. It's important. To establish on a, on a wide level the facility for people to realize their spiritual nature where you have extreme social injustice and corruption and exploitation and literal literal and figurative poisoning of, of the atmosphere it's very hard At best, you can help certain individuals progress in spite of this situation. But yet, working for social justice and political situations and environmental situations separately from spiritual enlightenment will just be frustrating. And I think the irony is only people who are well on the path of enlightenment can even understand what's necessary to transform society. You've heard of the law of unintended consequences? No? With something. When we study about policy, so a, a very simple example that I like to use it's, uh, it's from the United States. So in the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, America has passed laws helping people who have physical or mental disabilities and challenges. It didn't used to be that. It used to be, you know, if you had a physical or mental challenge, oh well, tough on you. Too bad. That was basically the rule. 
institutionalized people let them figure it out. And gradually we had laws that, you know, you have ramps everywhere, right, for people with wheelchairs, you have a facility for people who are visually impaired, hearing impaired, and so forth. Which is all a very good thing. Who would argue with that, right? That's all good. There's no question that that's good. So the lawmakers had an idea that, well, it's hard for hearing impaired people to get good medical care because they can't understand the doctor's instructions and they can't communicate their symptoms to the doctor. Okay, that makes sense. So what we should do is we should require all the doctors to have sign language interpreters for people who are hearing impaired. Okay, that's a good idea. But the U.S. government made that law without also providing the money to pay for it. Sign languages interpreters are not cheap. So the doctors had to hire sign language interpreters whenever they would treat a hearing impaired person. So what do you think they did? They stopped treating hearing impaired persons. It's pretty easy to tell if somebody's deaf. It's a pretty obvious thing to tell, right? Usually you make an appointment over a phone or even in person. It's a very obvious thing. And it was easy just for the people at the doctor's office to say, sorry, we don't have any room for the next four months. It was very, very difficult for anyone to legally say, hey, they're discriminating. And so the government, by trying to provide better care for deaf people, ended up providing no care for deaf people. That wasn't their intention. Or if we think about, again, I'm just looking at America. So in America, every child is required to go to school. But again, looking at, at disability, if children had a severe enough disability, the government didn't, have, didn't feel they had a responsibility to educate those children. So they said every child has to go to school, but by every child, they meant every normally able child. And then at a certain point, it was, wait a minute, no, no, every child, the government should have a responsibility to educate every single child at government expense, at least till the age of 16. But when you have children with severe handicaps, they require a lot of special attention just to be able to learn very, very basic and they have laws that say the children should be mainstream. They should be put, the disabled children should be put in the regular classroom as far as possible, which is, again, is a very good thing. But if you have a severely disabled child in the classroom, that child takes an inordinate amount of energy away from the teacher. So if the teacher has 25 kids, and one of those kids has a severe disability, then the teacher will have to spend a third or a half of her or his energy to take care of that child. And the other children won't get the proper education. Or the government has to spend up to fifty to hundred thousand dollars per year to try to educate those children. Many of whom, if, they're, if we're talking about people who are severe, many of whom can't receive much of an education at all anyway. So you're spending all of that money to be able to get somebody to a barely functional level, and you're taking away the resources from the other students. So that's what we call the law of unintended consequences. You know, the lawmakers sit and say, well, this is a good rule, 
this will be compassionate, this will be caring, this will take care of people. And it often harms the very people it's meant to take care of. And it can harm other people in the process. So this is our problem with trying to have a good political system and social justice in the world. We've been trying and trying and trying and trying with sincerity, I think. I, I think so. I think most people in the world are sincerely want to have fair, just, equitable, safe governments. But we don't seem to be able to do a very good job of it. I mean, some countries do a little better job of it than others. But I don't see any place in the world where we could say, yes, they're doing a great job. And I travel a lot. So unless we come to a platform where we have clear vision, where we really can understand what are the ramifications and the consequences of what I do, what will be good and what will be bad, we're never going to have a just and equitable society. And part of the reason for the International Society for Christian Consciousness was to create a class of people who could be enlightened visionaries. That's part of the purpose. Persons who, by having elevated spiritual consciousness, could see clearly enough to say, oh, this is how it's done. This, this is how we'll actually have people taken care of without these unintended consequences. If you don't do it that way, you may end up getting what you want and finding out what you want isn't what you wanted. I mean, like, like I think what's happening in American politics right now. Is, is what we got as a new leader really what people want? How many people are really going to be happy in a country run by that? How many people are going to say, yes, I like living in a country under the leadership of this person? And that's, that's what happens when, when we don't have proper consciousness. We don't know what, what is good and what is bad. And we end up choosing things and creating political systems and creating social systems which solve one set of problems and create another set of problems. Oh, we just said, right, like here in South Africa. Okay, let's throw out apartheid. Okay, great, let's throw out apartheid. And now what do you do? How, how are you going to get rid of people's racial consciousness? This is one of the most racially conscious countries in the world. Just by the way, you don't find this amount of racial consciousness in your side of Not even close. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to get people to just see people as people? And how are we going to get a society where people have equal opportunities? That's not very clearly thought out. It's not very clearly understood. And people look at things piecemeal. Does that make sense? You know, they, they just look at a piece. Okay, let, let's just, okay, let's fix this piece over here. Okay, well, when we fix this piece, this happens over here. Okay, well, then we'll fix this over here. Well, then this happens over here. And so if you work for social justice and political solutions outside of raising your consciousness, you may be very disappointed with what you end up with. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm just processing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, for me as an individual, that I have to think, okay, if I see some social injustice, if I see some political situation, to what extent is it my responsibility to get involved? And if it is, in what way can I get involved in the best way? Which is the same kind of question to anybody. That, that question is also there in the spiritual life. But we do care about the world. We're not a society of recluses. Mountaintop meditators who go down the road once a year. We would, we would like to create enlightenment, and I mean that very literally, and I mean that figuratively. We would like to create enlightened leaders in all areas of human endeavor. If the political systems were run by people who are genu genuinely enlightened, the businesses were run by people who are genuinely enlightened, that would be very Yes. So they, they can deal with it at that level, they can engage, they can be politicians, businessmen, but at the level of compassion machines for the greater good of other human entities, yet they're still separate from the results. And they're looking at the greater good spiritually. They're interested in the material situation as a platform for spirituality, not in themselves. They're not thinking that if we can improve everyone's material situation, everybody would be happy and satisfied, because that's not true. If that were true, then all the rich, famous, powerful people in the world would be happy and satisfied. And everybody knows that that's not the case. Everybody knows that a large percentage of rich, famous, and powerful people are not happy and satisfied people. Yes? Everybody knows that. So if you can make everybody in the world rich and powerful, that would not be producing an overall increase in happiness. So that's not why you want prosperity. You want prosperity. But you want prosperity as a platform. So that people are peaceful. You basically want a society where people don't have to worry, will I get something to eat? Will I, will I have shelter? Will I get something to eat? Will I be able to have a, a stable, romantic relationship with the family? Will I be able to walk on the street without somebody shooting me? You want people to have that level of, of peace so then they can go about their real business. It's something like if you want to, you know, you're running a company, so you may set up an office and give people desks and chairs and computers and phones. But it's not so that they can just say, wow, what a cool desk. It's so they can do their work. So the way we're really going to become happy and satisfied is through spiritual enlightenment. 
But for most of us, it's hard to do that if we have too much anxiety about it. spirituality into sets of dogma and, and ritual. Where processes for attaining enlightenment and spirituality become codified as particular sets of dogma and ritual, which becomes something like a nationality or a football team. a lot better thing than gross materialism and atheism We'd much rather people be religious than be just animalistic. But just being religious it's not really going to solve anything. What's your advice for someone who associates Most people's understanding of God is just is very distorted. It's not just lesser. It, it, it's, it's a real distortion. How, how can someone who associates that concept of God with religion all the time come closer to Krishna, come closer to understanding? Krishna says, abandon all varieties of religion and just surrender unto me. I shall deliver you from all sin for reaction. Do not fear. Go to the essence. Does real spirituality tend to become religious in time? Yes, it certainly does. Very quickly. Therefore, does that person by Vigiti Vidaya, Vigamasya, Gwana Bhavati 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 What's Dharma, what's truth, what's authentic becomes very quickly untruth and inauthentic and again has to be fixed. It's like your room has to be cleaned over and over again. It's like you clean your room and it's just clean. So that's something that each of us need to be aware of on an individual and collective basis to keep the principles of spirituality pure and active to not let it degrade into a religion. But it does. The way things are, it just does. People start thinking that the particular sets of belief and the particular rituals are in and of themselves something transcendent.
and then they start to identify with the religion as another material designation. You know, I become a Muslim or a Protestant or in the same way that I'm, you know, from Zambia. It becomes like that. It just becomes another label that one puts on oneself and another way that we think you're better than somebody else. You know what I'm saying? It's all it becomes. It just becomes an extension of the ego. Very quickly. It happens quite quickly. And just like your room gets dirty quickly. So it has to be constantly, constantly purifying and reviving. And now what's the solution for someone who's spiritual to not think of himself better than others? because he knows the ultimate truth or knows the higher truth. Well, this is one of the problems that Krishna explains in Bhagavad-gita when you come to what's called sattva and the mode of goodness. And the material mode of goodness. Goodness means that internally you have harmony and equanimity and peace and forgiveness. You're not easily disturbed by the things of the world. You're enjoying a pleasure beyond the senses and beyond uh, ego. But there are two problems with this because it's still material. One is that you get so conditioned by the incredible happiness and goodness that you don't want to go further to spirituality. You get stuck there. And the other is that you think you're better than others. Because in one sense, you are. You can see better than that doesn't mean that you're better. Like they're passing the ships, you know, they have the mast and they have the crow's nest at the top of the mast. So somebody climbs up in the crow's nest, they can see farther than the people on the deck. But that doesn't mean that they're inherently a better person. So in goodness, you, you can. You can see better, you can see farther, you can see more clearly. You're more in control of your of your body and your senses. In one sense, you are in a better situation, but you're not better as a being. All beings are equal, so that's a little problem in the mode. Those are the two things that are problem in the material mode. And how do you get freedom? You have to go above goodness to bhakti. In bhakti, there's no pride. Like that. At, at all, it's just not. There's, there's a wow! I'm an insignificant being. Woohoo! I don't have to pretend to be something special, other than what I am as a spiritual being. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put on some kind of show. And I already have what I, everything that I need. In every, I mean, why do I have to feel that I'm better than others? It becomes absurd. Is the, also the precaution that... It's uh, like if you've got plenty of food, why why do you want somebody to be hungry? So if you've got an, if you're completely overflowing with your own satisfaction, you wouldn't have a sense of superiority. And you see that that's what everybody is. They, people may not be awake to it, but that's what everybody is. 
It's not that you have that you're essentially different. I think it's time for dinner. So thank you very much. We have a very long journey tomorrow. So we don't we don't want to have a late night tonight. Thank, thank you. you for having us here. Thank you to uh, Camila. Thank you.